Let's please give a warm round of applause to Ben Ehrenreich. Thank you, Carrie. It's, uh, it's really great to be um, at Skylight. I'm going to be doing a bunch of readings um, around the country starting right now, uh, but this is without question the one that uh, means the most to me. There, um, if something were to happen to the people in this room, I would be devastated. Um, uh, a lot of the people that uh, I love the most in this room are, are here, and um, it's great to see you. Um, and also a lot of the people without whom I... I couldn't have written this thing, I couldn't have finished this thing, I couldn't have uh, functioned at all, so um, thank you guys. Um, and also a big thanks to Esty Chandler and Jewish Voice for Peace for um, helping to get the word out here. Um, and not just here in LA, but Esty's been, been a huge help in, in um, getting the word out to JV cha- VP chapters around the country. Um, um, I had uh, prepared some things to say, I don't know if I'm if I'm going to say him, um, it's been it's been a bad week. Um, it started out pretty horribly, uh, and um, we've had a lot of bad weeks. Um, and sometimes it seems like it's just one one bad week after another. And uh, while I was working on this book and living in Ramallah um, and coming back here. I, I kept having these strange experiences that um, people would say, oh, what's it, what's it like over there? It must be so awful. Um, you know, you must be so scared all the time, or uh, like, the, it must be really hard. And, I, and I'd say, no, it's fucked up here. Um, and, um, and it was, and I would actually have a harder time dealing with things here, because I think here there are levels of violence which are um, very deep, that a lot of people you know, we don't see, we're sort of, we're trained, we're educated not to see them. We grow up um, in ways that force us not to see them. Um, and some of those forms of violence are, are subtle. Um, some of them are forms of economic violence um, and various kinds of institutional violence that wound and kill people very, very slowly, um, but still kill them um, and still destroy them. And others are... Th- you know, just violence, violence, like somebody going into a nightclub and killing a lot of gay people, or somebody going into a church and killing a lot of black people, um, or the kind of violence um, that adds up uh, of police shooting young black and brown people, not always young, day after day after day after day after day after day. And this sort of thing, um, coming back to the U.S., was particularly hard for me because here it seemed invincible. Um, It seemed like because it was invisible to people, there was no way in. Um, And most people didn't even even see it, much less have a sense that there was something to be resisting against and something to be fighting. Um, And that wasn't true in Palestine. And so I I would often come back here and feel far more hopeless um, than I did in the West Bank. Um, I, I don't actually feel that way anymore. I think things... Uh, both for better and, and in some ways for worse, but also for better, really have shifted in the last two years. Um, but I'm, I'm not just saying this all to depress you, but but to get around to, to why I wrote this book and, and what was behind it for me, um, which was when I first went to Palestine in 2011, um, I went to this village, which I, I've written about um, in the New York Times Magazine and then far more extensively in this book called Nabi Saleh, um, which is a tiny village of about 600 people. 
And what was immediately impressive to me about this village and, you know, fascinated me, troubled me, um, was that every week they have a demonstration in this village. Starting in 2009, shortly after um, Israeli settlers in the settlement across the valley confiscated a spring that for generations had belonged to the people of this village, they started trying to march to that spring um, and every Friday. Um, and by they, I mean men, women, children, the people of the village, joined by usually Israeli activists and foreigners. And every week, um, they didn't get there because um, someone got in their way, and that someone was was the, the IDF who would come uh, with all kinds of armaments, um, the most usual being rubber-coated bullets, real bullets occasionally, tear gas, um, a really nasty thing called skunk water, um, which is the Arabic for it is, is more descriptive. It's just, they call it shit water, um, and it smells bad. Um, but, and then during the week, the soldiers would come back, and they would arrest people, um, and they would destroy people's homes. And, and um, So this village was paying this huge price um, every week, and all they had to do to stop paying this price and to just suffer the kind of normal baseline humiliation that people all around the West Bank suffer was stop these demonstrations, was stop trying to march to that spring, which they didn't use that much anyway, right? Um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was the point that mattered. It was the symbolism of taking the spring that mattered to them. And to make this point, they were willing to risk their lives, to risk their children's lives, week after week after week. And I found this confusing um, and inspiring um, and wanted to understand what it meant to struggle against something so much stronger than you something that you you, you, you know in the no sane person could think they would they could actually beat, and they didn't actually think they could beat it but they thought they could they could get the word out um, and in that I think they, they have succeeded um, so part of what this book is about is that kind of resistance um, and it's my attempt to, to grapple with what it means um, to resist an enemy who is so much vastly stronger than you um, and, and I, I think that that attempt on my part was certainly not just about Palestine um, and I think uh, I hope that when people read this book um, they, you, I hope um, are able to, to take things from it that don't just have to do with this, this specific conflict. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, the beginning, which is about Nabi Saleh. About the first third of the book is about Nabi Saleh. Um, and you know, one of the things that was really important to me was to not um, not do the kind of uh, resistance heroism romantic book that um, that's, that that I think has been done and is uh, like I think we're a lot of us are probably familiar with that kind of journalism about um, about the West Bank. Um, and not just write about you know heroic people throwing stones at, at armed soldiers, et cetera, et cetera, but to try to understand what happened between the demonstrations um, when people weren't out there. Like how how did they sustain themselves? Um, how did what did it mean when the cameras were gone? Um, myself excluded, of course. Um, and 
so a lot of a lot of this is about these these more intimate moments, um, not just the demonstrations themselves, not just the action when when things are being projectiles are flying through the air, but um, but the quieter moments. And I'm going to write about a, a trip to the beach. Read about a, a trip to the beach that I took um, with the family of uh, Bassam and Nariman Tamimi, who are probably, if this book has protagonists, it's it's probably them. Um, they were. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say the, um, the leaders of the, the movement in the village, there are other people who played powerful roles, but they were probably the two most prominent leaders. Um, and their children um, are, um, the oldest is named Wad, who's now in prison. Um, he's now 18. Um, he has a younger sister named Ahid, who some of you may have seen uh, her face. She's become quite famous. Um, her brother uh, was arrested. Um, this was several years ago. He was arrested just briefly, um, and she, in her furor, um, shook her her fist in the face of an Israeli soldier, and those images um, became really iconic images of, of Palestinian resistance. Um, the next youngest brother is named Abu Yazan. Uh, his actual name is Mohammed, but he goes by that nickname. Um, and he's a... He probably plays the largest role in the section I'm going to read to you. He's he's like, whenever anything goes wrong in the village, someone yells Abu Yazan, because <laughs> it's always Abu Yazan. Um, you know, I mean, he, he's he's this wonderful, brilliant kid who's who's really difficult um, and and um, and really smart. Um, and then his youngest brother is named Salam. And I should also say to introduce this. Um, from on a clear day, from the highest points in Nabi Saleh, like much of the West Bank, you can see Tel Aviv and you can see the Mediterranean. Um, but because of the restrictions on movement that have been put in place since the Second Intifada, um, a lot of most Palestinians can't cross into Israel and can't get to the beach, can't get to the to the sea, which means an entire generation of kids um, grows up without having to being able to see the sea, um, and it's hard to. Um, I, don't, I don't think we can overestimate how much this hurts people and how painful this is and how much people talk about it and how much a, a part of the imagination of people's imagination the sea is because it's right there and they can't get to it. Um, all week, Dariman said, Abu Yazan had been talking about nothing but the coastal city of Acre and the sea. He had never seen the open waves, never swam in it, never heard the rhythm of the waves rolling in. In school, his class had studied Acre with its ancient citadel and old crusader walls rising from the blue Mediterranean. Abu Yazan wanted to dive from, from their heights into the water below. He had seen photos, had heard his mother sing Acre's praises. You haven't lived, she told me once, until you've seen Acre. It was barely a couple, hours, uh, barely a couple of hours' drive away, but it had been 15 years since she and Bassam had been able to cross into Israel to make the trip. Before that, They'd only been there once, in the first year of their marriage, with Bushra and Naji. We all just cried, Nariman said, at the beauty of the places that had been lost to them. But it was Ramadan, and every Friday the Israeli authorities were allowing some West Bank Palestinians, women and girls, plus men over 40 and boys under 17, to cross through Kalandia checkpoint into Jerusalem to pray at the Al-Aqsa. I met the Tamimis near the East Jerusalem bus station with three Israeli friends. The kids were almost frantic with excitement. They had skipped the mosque and that, we and that week's demonstration in the village. We were going to the beach. 
I had withdrew into her iPhone as soon as we got in the car, but her little brother's eyes took in every vehicle we passed and every detail of the landscape, much tamer here than in the rocky hills of the West Bank. I could almost hear Abu Yazin's brain buzzing from the back seat. He asked his mother if it was true that Napoleon couldn't conquer Acre because the city's fortifications were so strong. She told him that it was. Then how did the Jews take it? They didn't, Nariman said. I don't understand how we just gave it away. In 1946, only 50 of Acre's 13,560 inhabitants were Jewish. In May 1948, after an outbreak of typhus, days of shelling and siege, and the complete destruction of several nearby villages by the Haganah, the pre-state militia that later formed the core of the IDF, nearly 80% of Acre's Arab population fled, surrendering the city. That's a footnote. The highway widened to six lanes. Hey, Abu Yazid yelled, I see the sea. He didn't really. We were still miles from the coast. Abiyazin spotted a sign for the turnoff to Nazareth. Is there a sea in Nazareth? He asked. We passed the domed concrete silos of a power plant, and then Haifa was in front of us. Not the sea yet, but the shipyards and the train yards and the rear slope of Mount Carmel. Then there it was, the sea, big and blue between the buildings of the port. Everyone was quiet. How beautiful our country is, said Neriman. This isn't our country. Said Abu Yazan. Then whose is it? It's the army's country. But the kids would have to wait. We went first to the Baha'i Gardens with their palm trees and groomed hedges and flowers spilling in terrace cascades down the western slope of Mount Carmel. Wad took photos of the flowers. Abu Yazan climbed everything that could be climbed. The sea gleamed beneath us in the distance. We headed for the cars. Bassam wanted to drop in on a friend. It was too much for Abu Yazan. He couldn't wait another moment. He howled and made a break for it, running into traffic. I darted after him and carried him squirming to the car. Eventually, we drove north to Acre. Abu Yazan raced up the stone steps of the seawall, scrambled over the rocks beyond the guardrail, and leaned out over the edge to watch the surf crash in below. I had to catch him by his shirt. We walked beneath the ancient arches of the old city and through its narrow alleys. It was 95 degrees and humid. The children ran screaming through the streets, splashing one another with bottled water, their shouts echoing off the thick stone walls. We watched the local kids jump from the seawall into the water 30 feet below. Wad and Abu Yazan peeled off their t-shirts and dared each other to make the leap, but in the end they didn't do it, which was just as well, because neither of them could swim. It was nearly six by the time we made it to the beach. The sun was still hot. It wasn't much of a beach, just a narrow strip of shore wedged between a row of four-story Soviet-style apartment blocks and the sea. The sand was flecked with colorful shreds and shards of plastic, surf-degraded shopping bags and random junk in blue and green and pink. Before I stepped out of the car, the kids had bolted for the water. Bassam sat in the shallows and let the waves tickle his bare feet. Neriman lay on a blanket with the others. Abu Yazan, who had waded to the far end of the beach, was screaming. A fish, he yelled, a fish. I swam over, expecting whatever it was to be gone by the time I reached him. But the fish was still there, about six inches long and very dead, lolling with the current. 
Abu Yazan reached, reached to grab it, got scared, and pulled his hand back. I told him not to touch it, but Salam waded over, picked it up with a drifting shred of plastic bag, and ran off to show his mother, swinging the fish by its tail. The sun sank, and the water turned white, and then gold, and then gray and flat, as the sun disappeared behind the clouds. Bassam and Nariman walked alone down the shore. I had never seen them hold hands before. The sun was gone. Everyone else on the beach had left. The kids were in the water, shrieking and splashing and paddling about. It was dark by the time they slumped back to the cars, wet towels on their pale, skinny shoulders, shivering a little and smiling still. I'll read um, a couple of the short sections. The next one I'll read is from... uh, The middle section of the book is about the city of Hebron. Has anyone had the pleasure of visiting Hebron? Um, I think you'll agree that Hebron is one of the stranger places on the planet. Um, For those who haven't been there and don't know, Hebron is the largest city in the West Bank um, and the only city in the West Bank in which Israeli settlers have a um, permanent presence. one year, less than a year after the, uh, the 1967 occupation of the West Bank, um, a group of uh, quite extreme fundamentalist um, settlers, although that wasn't yet a category, um, established themselves in the core of Hebron and have been there since um, and have sort of been slowly spreading um, from really house by house by house to take over larger sections of the city. Um, so the, the city's actually been split in two, um, H1, H2. Um, one part of the city is controlled by the Palestinian Authority, where only Palestinians live, and the other part is controlled by the Israeli military, and that's the part where the settlers live. Of course, there's also Palestinians living in the part where the settlers live, which leads to uh, no end of, uh, of madness, um, the city really being um, broken again and again. There, there, you know, there are roads on which um, settlers can walk, but Palestinians cannot. Um, endless checkpoints, um, endless sort of invisible divisions. Um, the main street, which was the main commercial street in Hebron, is called Shuhada Street. It was a, a bustling um, you know, commercial district until the Second Intifada, and now it's it's absolutely ghostly empty. Um, on most of it, there's one stretch where Palestinians can walk but not drive. On most of it, Palestinians can't be there at all. You see soldiers, you see settlers driving by quickly, um, and you see stray dogs, and it's it's just it's just ghostly. Um, and the the section I'm going to read from is about a house that opens up on one side to Shuhada Street. Um, so. Uh, this may be a little hard to imagine, um, but it opens on one side to Shuhada Street, and that side has been sealed off by the military, which means the people who live in the house, and not only the, the door, but all the windows have been sealed off on that side. Um, so the people who live in, in that house have to go out through the, through the back, which opens up into, into the souk, into the, the old city of Hebron itself. Um, let's see. Just outside the gold market, now the rubbish market, a heavy man named Abdelkhalek Seder had invited us in for tea. He took us first to his roof. None of it was visible from the market below, but from the rooftop it was possible to see that Seder's house was right next to Beit Hadassah. Beit Hadassah is one of the, uh, the main Jewish settlements uh, along Shuhada Street. Um, and across the street from the Sharabatis. 
It was a perilous location. Soldiers had welded shut not only the Seder's door to Shuhada Street, but all their windows facing south. The other windows were blocked by the same thick screens that covered every vulnerable aperture of every inhabited Palestinian dwelling in H2, H2 being the the part of Hebron in in which settlers live. All the time they throw stones, Seder said of the settlers. If I say good morning, they say Sharmuta. Sharmuta is Arabic for whore. He smiled grimly and told a few stories. Nothing extreme, the kind I would hear in almost every house I visited in Hebron. Every Palestinian house, that is. A month and a half earlier, Seder said, the soldiers claimed a child had thrown stones from his roof. They came in to search the house, shoved his brother's four-year-old daughter, and when he became angry, beat him. They ended up breaking his arm. A few months later, after I left the city, I found a link to a video shot by Abdul Khalik's brother Shadi. The incident it recorded was not anything out of the ordinary. It was, in the local parlance, normal. But it managed to capture a great deal in a few short minutes, not just about Hebron, but about the whole sad comedy in which everyone was caught. The video began with a settler appearing on the edge of the Seder's roof, which was protected from its neighbors with a fence and a single coil of razor wire. A Palestinian flag flew from a low pole on the corner closest to Beit Hadassah. The settler, a thin-bearded man in a white shirt and a wide white skullcap, had climbed up from the adjacent rooftop. He was clinging to the fence and appeared to be struggling. Why are you coming onto my roof? Shadi asked. The settler answered in a stilted Hebrew accented heavily with Russian. Just to take down the flag, he said, coolly, as if he had come to fix the cable. Shadi repeated his question in a Hebrew that was equally stilted and heavily accented with Arabic. Okay, said the settler, said, said the settler who appeared to be stuck. I won't come over. I just want to talk to you. The entrance is over there, said Shadi. Come through there. The settler asked for the flag. He even said, please. Voices echoed up from below, egging him on. Take the flag. The camera panned. Dozens of settlers had gathered behind Beit Hadassah. Some were shouting and making obscene gestures. Film this, you son of a whore, one yelled. The settler, it was now clear, was standing on top of a ladder, fully snarled in the razor wire, unable to go up or down. Shadi reached out to untangle him. It's okay, he said. Let me help you. You are welcome. He really said that. Another settler, standing at the base of the ladder, yelled up, Don't touch him! Shadi pulled his hand back. The settler wanted to talk. He was earnest and composed, as if he and Shadi Seder had casually struck up a conversation while standing in line at the post office and had raced past the small talk to what really irked them. He objected to the flag again. He thought it was Jordanian. Or more likely, he knew exactly what it was, but couldn't bring himself to say the word Palestinian. You live in Israel, he said, not in Jordan. It wasn't an issue that Shadi seemed interested in pursuing. What if I came onto your roof, he asked, and took down an Israeli flag? Would that be good? The settler thought about it. He shrugged. He even said sorry. Then he appeared to reconsider. This roof is mine, he said. It is all mine. The whole country is mine. He was still stuck, still tangled in razor wire. He couldn't advance, but he couldn't back down either. 
He couldn't move at all without tearing his own flesh, but he was sure of himself and apparently oblivious to the precariousness of his position. A soldier had arrived and begun yelling up at Shadi in Arabic, ordering him to go back inside his house. The settler kept talking. This is the land of Israel, he insisted. This is my country, and everything that is here is mine. That's Hebron. In Hebron, that actually does seem normal. Um, um, and I'll, I'll read a section about the, um, the... The last third of the book goes... jumps around to a bunch of different places. Um, it ends up following... Uh, the track of events that led up to the war on Gaza in the summer of 2014. Um, but before that, that horrible summer began, um, that spring, I went to a tiny village, um, which I had visited many times before, um, but I went and stayed for a while, a village called Umulcher, which is in the um, hills south of Hebron, um, sort of at the, the northernmost edge of the Negev Desert. Um, very dry, barren, rocky, mountainous land. Um, the poorest, most sparsely populated part of the West Bank. Um, the people in many of the villages there are Bedouin. Um, most of them, as in, in this village, are people who were um, chased out and had to flee uh, from the part of the Negev that falls inside of Israel in the years immediately following um, 1948. Um, and this particular village, they arrived there sometime in the early 50s and bought um, their, the grandfather of, the, of the, the family that lived there. It's a tiny, tiny village, about you know 50 to 100 people. Um, their grandfather had bought this land on this on this hilltop um, and as happened in, in many other parts of the West Bank sometime in the 1970s uh, the late 70s um, some settlers arrived and decided it was a nice hilltop to build their homes on um, and created what is now the settlement of Carmel Umulcher is um, remarkable in that the the Bedouin the Palestinian community is really just meters away from the settlement itself um, you know uh, you can I, I can't throw a rock very far, but if I if I could throw a rock, you, you know, you you could hit the windows very very easily. Um, it's it's kind of uh, at the edge of the sidewalk compared to where I'm standing here. Um, a lot of the villages in that part of the South Hebron Hills um, face really serious aggression. Um, the the villages around Hebron and the villages around Nablus have the, the kind of most violent and most aggressive settlers in all of the West Bank. Um, and there were places with, with uh, where I probably could have found a lot more action, if that's what I was looking for. Um, you know, where the settlers were constantly attacking people in the villages. There were, they were, you know, there were sort of constantly things happening. Um, here things were not happening very much. The people in Carmel were, they were fairly quiet as settlers go, especially in that part of the world. Um, and I remember an Israeli activist I knew was like, why, like, why do you want to go to Umulcher? Nothing happens there. Why don't you go to Tuwani or Susia? Um, but it, it, it was precisely this nothing that I wanted to record um, because in Umulher what is happening is in some ways more similar to what's happening overall it's just this kind of slow squeeze um, you know one little hillside is taken over here, a little patch of land is taken over here, and slowly it becomes impossible for the um, herders to bring their animals to pasture. You know, slowly, month by month, with these, these very tiny um, you know, um, confiscations, their way of life becomes completely impossible and, and unviable. Um, and that's what I want to record there. 
I, I, this is going to sound weird. I had a great time there. I, I, I really, I, um, the people there are really wonderful. Um, we had a lot of time. We would talk about all kinds of things, from like kung fu movies to the most profound religious questions. Um, all day we were talking, and um, the person who really attracted me to this village was this guy Eid Eid Suleiman Al Hadalin, who is a very um, extraordinary figure. Um, He's an artist, he's a sculptor, uh, not a common thing in a very poor Bedouin village. He's a vegetarian, even less common in a community of, of herders, um, and a, a really deep and sensitive soul uh, in a part of the world where um, sensitivity is not rewarded. Um, and I'll read you a little bit about him. Oh, and his, uh, the only other little bit, bit of background you need is Eid works. Um, he's one of the few people in the uh, village with a... He's got a good job with an NGO. He works for the Halo Trust, which is, a, I believe, a Scottish-American NGO that picks up munitions, um, you know, goes to, get to former conflict zones and picks up unexploded munitions and mines and things like that. Um, in the South Hebron Hills, there, there's not many mines. There are mines in, uh, elsewhere in the West Bank and the Jordan Valley, but there are um, a lot of leftover munitions from Israeli uh, training exercises um, over the years, um, which occasionally kill a farmer or a, or a kid. We were at the birthday party for Eid's daughter, Lynn, when his phone rang. It was a farmer named Ibrahim who was harvesting wheat just outside the village with his son. Something had fallen from an F-16, he said, and landed in their field. It was a short walk. The farmers, who had come from Yatta to work the land, put down their scythes and showed Eid what they had found, a heavy rectangular object wrapped in shiny foil and dented at one end. A sticker in Hebrew had survived the fall, flammable material, it read. Eid didn't think it was dangerous. He photographed it anyway and logged the location on a yellow GPS reader. The farmers went back to their work, and Eid and I sat on a stone wall. The conversation turned to animals, their genius and their strength, our blindness beside the power of their senses. You know, the camel can crush a car, Eid said. If you make it angry, oh God, it will kill you. And of course there were giraffes. What a miracle of an animal, Eid said. Her legs are so long. Yes, my friend, he sighed. That is it. So easy, so hard. It was something he said often. A refrain he repeated, almost a tick. I thought about it later, lying awake on the cistern, staring up at the maze of the stars and at Mars glowing red in the sky. I remembered a Dostoevsky story called The Dream of a Ridiculous Man. Walking home one gloomy night, Dostoevsky's protagonist saw a bright star between the clouds and resolved to end his life that very evening. But he fell asleep, his revolver, his revolver on the table beside him, and dreamed that he had shot himself, and with death, traveled to the star he had seen and found a planet there, like the earth, but undefiled by the fall. Its people knew neither cruelty nor grasping, only a love increased as if to the point of rapture, but a rapture that was calm. And the protagonist, freed from his despair, saw how beautiful life could be, how simple it was to love. Of course, it didn't work out. It was a Dostoevsky story. Without meaning to, the story's protagonist brought corruption with him. 
in jest or in flirtation, he told one small lie, and lies soon spread, and cruelty was born from them, and bloodshed and shame. There began the struggle for separation, for isolation, for mine and thine. No sooner had people turned on one another than they began talking of brotherhood and humanity, and no sooner had they discovered crime than they invented justice and drew up whole codes of law. The protagonist awoke from his dream and resolved to devote his life to preaching, to telling everyone he could of the truth he had witnessed. His message was not so different from Eads, that people can be happy and beautiful without losing their ability to live on earth, that all they have to do is love. That is the main thing, and that is everything. So easy, my friend, and so hard. And that, I realized, was why the others regarded Eid with such gentle admiration, no matter how heretical or nonsensical they found his views. It wasn't just his art or his intelligence that made him special. It was that something had stayed alive in him that had died or gone dormant in the rest of us, something delicate and perhaps even sacred. And though we could not always find it in ourselves, no, and although we could no longer always find it in ourselves, we could recognize it in Eid, could see its beauty and its truth, and also the pain it caused him. Behind us, on the far side of the fence, three soldiers loitered outside their quarters. One of them walked off on patrol, not bothering to wear his helmet, and Eid talked about torture in the prisons of the Arab world and the fear that prevented him from going to pray at the Al-Aqsa and the possibility of Judgment Day. I believe in that, he said, though he didn't think it would happen soon. We talked about climate change and the, and the war in Ukraine. Bad world, Eid said. Everything is going to be a problem. And we talked about his first time on a plane in the city of Cambridge, which he had loved, and the fanatical settlers of Yitzhar. A lot of crazy things in this world, Eid observed. Where there are bad things, you can find the good things, actually. For instance, there was a settler who lived in Carmel, the son of a Holocaust survivor. His name was Roan. He had called Eid to apologize the last time the army demolished homes in the village. He's a very good man, actually, Eid said. He didn't speak to him often because the other settlers would cause trouble for him if they saw him fraternizing with Arabs. But in my mind, Eid said, he's a friend of mine. I'm not concerned with the geography, whether it's an illegal settlement or not. I'm concerned with finding good men, even the bad men. And Eid acknowledged that there were some of those. He didn't want to see them hurt. It pained him, he told me, whenever he heard that a settler had been shot. The man's family would suffer, and so would whoever shot him, whether they were captured or not. The wheel of vengeance would keep on spinning and dragging everyone along. I think this land is very big, Eid said. It can take all of us without any problems. But because we are humans, we are stupid, and we do not see the truth. We do not want to speak to our neighbors, and there is misunderstanding between us. I was about to reply that he made it sound too simple. The good people did ugly things all over the world, and it was rarely a question of individuals and their choices or emotions, but of systems, machines that were larger than any of us. But Eid beat me to it and said it again, his refrain. It's so easy, he said, and so hard. He talked about other friends, Israeli friends whom he used to see but didn't anymore, Eyal from Beersheba, with whom he used to do Tai Chi, and another friend, really a very good man, 
who lived in Sterot, just outside of Gaza, and who had to deal not only with the rockets falling, but with the anger of his neighbors who didn't like it that he had Palestinian friends, until finally he moved his family to America because he didn't want his children to grow up around such hate. And another friend, a very good friend, who had moved to the U.S. too, so that her son would never have to be a soldier. Yes, Ede said, they all moved away, and he was always sad when they did. But of course they moved, he said. Everyone wants to go. I didn't mention that most of the people in the village wanted only to stay. Um, I was just back in, in Umulcher, uh two or three weeks ago. In April, they, uh, they suffered uh, the seventh round of demolitions um, that that village has suffered. Um, there had been a previous round the previous October, uh, which meant that a number of families had to go through the winter without, without homes. This last round came early in the morning, um, in mid-April. Bulldozers knocked down six homes, which provided shelter for 35 people. Um, I, I expected them to, uh, to be really depressed when I got there. Um, because they had been the previous time I'd been there. And uh, strangely enough, Ede was, he was in a really good mood. And uh, he, he was no longer talking about leaving Palestine, no longer talking about leaving the West Bank. He said they can come back as many times as they want, and they can knock down as many homes as they want, and we'll still be here. And he laughed. Um, it, it wasn't a, it was a, the kind of laughter you get to know pretty well uh, if you spend a lot of time there. Um, but it was, it was, it was real. Um, that's all I'm going to read. Um, I don't want to end on a note of utter despair. Um, and, and I don't think there's reason to despair utterly. And I think the fact that, uh, that we're having this conversation now, um, it's not a conversation yet. You, you guys can talk soon. Um, is, is a, um, a reason for hope that, um, because I don't think this would have been possible even five years ago. You know, I think that the, the conversation around Palestine has been so shut down for so long. Um, and that's one of the things that has prolonged um, the occupation and, and the suffering of, of people in the West Bank and Gaza is that the country that funds um, that occupation um, and those military incursions and assaults um, doesn't want to talk about it and doesn't want to think about it. Um, and people are starting to talk about it, um, not just in this room, uh, but elsewhere. And I, th- I think I take a lot of hope from that, that um, you know, at the moment people are talking about it and our elected leadership um, is doing the same thing it's always done. Um, but for the first time you know, in the last few months, we had a presidential candidate who was willing to talk about this stuff, um, who was willing to say outrageous things, like that this conflict would not end until Palestinians were accorded dignity. It's like outrageous statement, like the Democratic you know, uh, um, establishment was furious. He'd said such a crazy thing. Um, but he said it, and he, he said it on a national stage. Um, and I don't think he would have said that. He, he, he is Bernie Sanders, if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, who some of you may like him, some of you may not, but um, he, he's a politician, and, and he, he, he takes positions that he know he has a base for, um, and I'm sure he knew his polls, because um, six months earlier he wasn't saying things like that. Six months earlier he was being, refusing to be at all critical of Israel, even during, um, even over the, you know, the real infamies of the last Gaza war. Um, but things had shifted enough that he knew he had backup. Um, he knew he had people who supported him if he took those positions openly. And, and that gives me a, that does give me a lot of hope. Um, so, um, um, 
why don't I stop talking now? And if you guys have any questions, I'll try to answer them. Thank you. Yes? Uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about your background, how were you raised? Um, how did you change? <laughs> um, <laughs> where to begin? Um, uh, what do you mean, how did I change? Um, well, I feel like you're asking. Maybe you never changed, maybe you were always I was, mu I was much smaller <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> um, how, did my, uh, how did I change if I changed with regard to. Oh, I don't know if they changed. They they got more complicated and 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 deeper. Um, uh, I'm guessing that you're asking if if I was brought up in a Jewish family and if that gave me certain perspectives on this conflict. Um, and um, my father is Jewish. My mother's not. Uh, whether I am, I will leave to the ether. Um, I was not brought up in a Zionist family. Um, my father's family was was uh, secular, atheist, going back um, three generations, um, with no particular uh, attachment to to Zionism or to Israel. Um, so I didn't have. Uh, it wasn't something I grew up hearing about or thinking about much, except when it made the news. I went there as a tourist um, in 1997 for the first time. I had uh, friends, good friends, Jewish friends, who after college decided to go to um, live in Jerusalem, and I went to visit them. And um, there were, I think there was some part of me that thought that this was going to be some kind of a homecoming. Um, some part of my Jewish ancestry would, would find itself reflected there, and it, it didn't. Um, even then, and things were not nearly as bad then as they are now, uh, I couldn't help but be disturbed by a lot of, of what I saw. Um, and, you know, I, I was being a tourist. I wasn't being a, a political journalist. I wasn't sticking my nose in, in places and trying to find the hard stuff. Um, but I think there were still levels of inequality and separation um, and militarism that I found pretty disturbing. Um, and I didn't start thinking about them seriously until a number of years later when I started looking at it as a journalist. Um, and here I am. Yes? Um, I, um, I, have a, I have a couple of questions. Um, number one, I wanted to know what the excuse was they made for those six homes being demolished. Number two, I was hearing about, I live in a uh, religious community. It drives me nuts. I hate it. <laughs> I'm going to hang myself from my balcony. Don't do that. Don't do that. No, I swear yeah. I am. I just go to my gym and I'm like... <laughs> and unfortunately, there's not many people at my gym I could talk to about it. Cause, so, but, because I really like to cause a lot of shit if I could. So, I see them collecting the money. And so... There was a story a few years ago about money laundering in New York City. So I called up the IRS here mm -hmm. because that money is going to the settlements. Mm -hmm. And if the if the if US says they're not supposed to be building settlements, 
which of course they're ignoring. But if this is what we say, then it seems to me if there are people in this country sending money to build those settlements, that what is different about what's different about that than sending money to finance type terrorists? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know if you have any opinion about that. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I don't know the numbers, and I, I should look up, you know, uh, study up on this. But yeah, a huge amount of the um, the money that does go to fund settlers, and maybe somebody else in the room knows these stats better than I do, um, comes from private donors in the U.S. A lot of it comes from, you know, uh, particularly wealthy private donors like Sheldon Adelson, people like that. Um, but a lot of it comes from, you know, small donations that are they're taken up in. in synagogues and, and whatnot, and I don't know that everyone necessarily knows exactly what their money is being spent for. Um, and yeah, I think that's a problem. Um, uh, in answer to your other question about the excuse for the demolitions, um, the Oslo Agreement in uh, 1993 divided the West Bank up into three zones, areas A, B, and C. Areas A are the Palestinian, um, the, the zones under complete control, complete control of the Palestinian Authority, mainly the, the densely populated cities. Areas B are areas that are under the security control of the Israelis, but where the Palestinian Authority still holds sway in administrative matters. And Area C is under the complete control of the Israeli military. Um, which means that everything, and that's more than 60% of the West Bank is is Area C. Um, so, you know, the, to, to make that quicker and shorter, the Israeli military is in complete control and is the only potentate in 60% of the West Bank, um, including Umukher. Um, and in that 60% of the West Bank, if you want to do anything, if you want to dig a well, if you want to... Um, you know, anything that you would need a building permit for here, if you want to build an expansion to your home, if you want to put a new bathroom in, if you want to build a new home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you have to apply to the Israeli civil administration, which is a wing of the Israeli military. Um, and if you are Palestinian, um, they almost always say no, um, because they do not want the expansion of, of Palestinian communities in Area C. They want them to go. Um, so... What this means is that basically any structure built in Area C um, since 1967 um, is considered illegal by the Israeli authorities um, and therefore is subject to demolition when they decide they want to demolish it. Um, and there are ways for Palestinians to fight this. They can go through the courts. They can argue in various ways. Um, but usually when the Israelis want to destroy something, they can and they do. Um, let me, let's just uh, let's see if... Yeah. You go ahead and then her. Yeah, I just have a general question, couple of questions. Because I've been following the, uh, the situation for a really long time, and I just find myself mentally going between this and the anger and despair. And it's just the situation is eroded so gradually because it's that low level abrasion that you can see happening, and it's very conscious and very simple. And it's, um, and I just don't know how to think about it anymore in a way that is a, I don't know, a positive something. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that that's one thing. And we need to one. Second is, I just had this crazy idea, like, what would you, as someone so embedded, I guess, at least in the industry, just platonically give advice to the cops? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take that one first. Um, I, 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 
generally don't want to say anything on behalf of, of Palestinians, but one thing I will say is the last thing they need is advice from Americans, <laughs> um, and, the la- and the last thing they want, you know, um, and I, I definitely don't want to be don't want to be that guy. Um, uh, yeah, things things get worse um, and have been getting worse for a long time. Things are remarkably bad right now. Uh, you know, I mean, I think um, in addition to the you know, sometimes slow, sometimes fast encroachments on Palestinian land within the West Bank and the occasional, like, decimation of Gaza. Um, you know, the, 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 not only the Israeli government, but the Israeli public has moved farther and farther to the right. Um, you know, we now have Avigdor Lieberman um, as the defense minister um, in Israel, who is a, you know, a brute and a bully, uh, you know, who makes Netanyahu look gentle. Um, and and he's no friend to Netanyahu. He took the defense minister post because he wants to replace him, you know. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people in the States think, oh, but the Israeli left at some point will stand up and stop this. The Israeli left is completely tiny and powerless. Netanyahu responds only to the right, which moves him further and further to the right. So you're nodding and getting more depressed. I think, you know, the the one thing that, that does give me hope is because, yeah, the, like the good things are not going to come out of that, you know, um, is, like, we're not powerless here. Um, as long as the U.S. is, is giving, at the, right now, $3.1 billion. Netanyahu is working hard to negotiate this figure up. $3.1 billion in military aid every year to Israel, which is more than we give to any other country. Uh, the total amount we've given to Israel is far more than we've given to any other country on the planet in our history as a country. Um, as long as our government does that, and as long as we still believe we have any power over what our government does, which, a little bit, right? Um, then we're not powerless. Um, and there's stuff we can do. Um, and I think it, it's really easy to get to feel despair about what's happening there. Um, but I, I do feel a lot of hope about what's happening here and the way things are changing here. Um, and I think... I think you should too. Um, um, yeah, then Garrick. I wondered if you I'll give you I'll give you two signs. Um, one is like the fact that that article was published, um, the fact that this book is being published, and, and also things published by people other than me um, about this subject. Um, but I mean, in in my experience as a journalist, um, every time I've written about this and it's gotten into some you know major mainstream publication, I've been shocked. And every time it's happened, I've known that it wouldn't have happened a year or two earlier. You know, I read an op-ed for the LA Times in 2009. I couldn't believe they took it. Um, you know, I wrote a piece for Harper's two years later. I wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine two years later. Each time, it was like, like it, it was, wow, they're, they're actually letting me do this. Um, and 
so the media conversation has shifted. I mean, I, I think the other side of Israeli society becoming more and more extreme and more and more violent is that American Jews and Americans generally feel more and more alienated from what happens there um, and feel more free to criticize it. You know, I mean, 2,200 people, a quarter of them children, were killed in the summer of 2014 in Gaza. In the previous war, 1,400 people were killed and a similar proportion of them children and civilians. Um, it's hard to pretty that up, you know. Um, and I, I think that is really shifting the conversation, especially generationally. I mean, I think younger people who are growing up seeing this Israel um, are, are really having a, um, don't have the same loyalties that older generations had. Um, the other thing I'll say is, is, is just that, this generational shift. I mean, on college campuses all over the country, there are chapters of Students for Justice in Palestine, there are chapters for Jewish Voices for Peace. This kind of activism didn't exist on college campuses, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Am I right, 10, 15 years ago? Um, and, you know, there there is a movement growing, you know, um, and it's a movement that Israel is very nervous about, you know, and all of the the anti-BDS legislation that we're seeing, all of the attempts to, you know, attack free speech on college campuses, you know, to make uh, opposition to Zionism, to equate it with anti-Semitism, as they tried to do in the University of California, like all of these 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 really scary and aggressive moves are, I think, the panic of someone who's on the defensive. Um, and as, so as scary as it is, like, it means that real progress is being made. Um, so, uh, Garrick? Um, you just mentioned the BDS movement, which kind of the, the, let's say, the primary way that international solidarity, this is the Palestine solidarity over the last now almost 11 years. Um, I'm just curious in your, particularly in staying in the small villages in mm -hmm. the West Bank, does that come up? Does BDS come up? Is that something that people are thinking about and, and looking at, or is that more of a I mean, activists, and especially activists who've traveled outside of Palestine, are certainly aware, very much aware of it. Um, but for the most part, uh, like a lot of people in the West Bank are not particularly aware of BDS. Um, and uh, that's because it's it's for us to do, right? I mean, it, it's a, it's a it's a tool for um, to put pressure on Israel from the outside. Um, you know, for the most part, Palestinians don't really get much choice. Like they get their water from Israel. All of the pretty much all of the produce in the in the markets is is Israeli produce, and there's not many other choices. Most of the products that they have to buy are Israeli products. Um, so it's 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 very difficult for Palestinians to uh, you know. Um, to go along with BDS, even if they do support it. But, What's BDS? Uh, BDS is the Movement for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions um, to put a, economic pressure on, on Israel. Uh, yeah. I uh, appreciate your, your approach, real human approach, rather than political or divisive approach. Uh, I was in the West Bank for a month. And uh, the situation in Hebron is really ugly, really ugly, where the settlers are throwing garbage down into the marketplace, mm -hmm. and they have to screen the walk so the garbage doesn't fill mm -hmm. up the street. But I wanted to mention a note uh, of hope, and uh, someone uh, who I admire greatly, a Palestinian, uh, Christian Palestinian in uh, Bethlehem, Masin, Kim Sayu, I'm sure you know him more than what. I know the name, yeah. 
but uh, I stayed with him for about a week with the family there. And uh, the people that come through there, it's amazing how many people come through from all over the, all over the world, from Switzerland, all over. Mm -hmm. And he receives them all. And besides being a professor and, uh, and managing the uh, biodiversity, the, the museum that he has, he goes out and collects uh, specimens. And he's, just, he's just doing a great job because he's an avid, avid resistor to the uh, occupation. I just want to bring that. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I appreciate your grassroots advocacy, and I've read a lot of your work, and we mm -hmm. are actually Facebook friends with a lot of experts. Nice to meet you. <laughs> I'm Shana, and I'm from Prince Bizarro. Um, and we studied with Edward Said at Columbia. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to boil this down to a simple formula, and you tell me what's wrong with this. I'm thinking sort of like Hillary right now. And we've got, and I have a Jewish mother, and I'm very sympathetic with the formation of the state. But you've got this island with no hope of surviving. Everyone around wants its destruction and is hostile towards it, and will eventually get that goal. But for America, who perceives everyone around them as our enemy and someone we're at war with. So how do we negotiate that? I mean, I don't think that's true anymore. I mean, um, you know, Jordan has certainly been a good friend to Israel for quite a while. Uh, you know, Israel has found a good friend in, in Sisi um, in Egypt. Um, you know, I, I think Israel certainly, like, keeps that, that narrative going. Um, but uh, I, I don't think it's accurate anymore. Oh, yeah. And the other oh, I'm sorry. And the other element, the important element, I forgot, is that they've gone totally Trump. So they've gone to a point where they're not going to dial back. All their chances to dial mm -hmm. back, every reasonable chance, has been blown. Mm -hmm. You don't think so? No. Um, let, let me just let me just repeat so people can uh, and tell me if I'm if I'm getting it wrong. Um, she was saying a, a simple way to describe the situation is that Israel is surrounded by by enemies, um, and its only friend is the U.S. Um, and in this in this situation, they're sort of going Trump. Is that? Well, we're at war hmm. with these perceived enemies of Israel. Ah, okay. In a Hillary speak, and they, Israel has gone so Trump right now that they're not going to dial back to any of the opportunities for peace that were I felt were really there, and I think they've gone so far over. They've gone so far nuclear. They're not going to come back. They're going to self-destruct. I mean, there's no yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, the current Israeli, um, this moment in Israeli politics, there's not a lot of hope that, uh, um, you know, some more moderate forces are, are going to arrive on their own in Israel without significant pressure from outside. Um, and that's why I think things like BDS are extremely important. Um, but I, I think also political pressure um, outside of the BDS movement on elected representatives in this country who are signing those checks um, is is extremely important. Um, and it, you know, even in a smaller way, just talking about it, you know, um, especially I think I think this is this isn't necessarily true for for younger people who don't have these these fears, but certainly for like. People probably in their 30s and up, like we all know, the worst thing you can do at dinner with someone's family is mention the word Palestine. You know, um, like it's just going to ruin it. Um, and and it, and it's still or the gym depends what gym. Um, and 
you know, so I think like we avoid it. I avoid it in, in a lot of situations, which is hard when it's the, the main thing you're thinking and writing about, you know, and working on. Um, but, but I think like making it something that we talk about, having it be a discussion that we're not afra- afraid to have, because when we don't talk about it, the narrative that's already out there doesn't get interrupted. Um, and it, it, it remains the dominant narrative. And I think it, it just needs to be like challenged at every opportunity. You know, I, mean, I, th- I think for, for years it was a, a Cold War asset, you know, um, while, you know, the, um, that hasn't been true for some time. Um, Israel has certainly um, takes every opportunity to show itself to be our friend in the war against terror, um, whatever whatever you take that to mean. Um, but I think it, it can you can make a very strong argument that for a very long time, like Israel's presence as an aggressive force in the region has been profoundly destabilizing for the entire region, um, and that you know the the only hope for. Uh, you know, not just an end to the occupation, but to some stabler and less bloody situation in the Middle East as a whole, will have to involve some solution to this conflict. Yeah. Uh, Tell me. Um, during the discussion in the window of the year about nuclear weapons, the, the, the other reality that's staring people in the face over there is the Genie is out of the box, and certainly the, the, uh, the question of how far will the, that regime go to keep itself in power? Anybody who doesn't think about that is it really opening their eyes wide enough? Yeah, you know. Um Israel officially is, of course, not a nuclear power, but we all know that, that they are, and, and there's, there's, um, you know, the development of a nuclear program has been leaked and, and, and well-established. Um, but I think because, because it's still, because uh, officially they don't have a, any nuclear weapons, it doesn't play a big role in the, in the discourse there. Like, I, I don't, for all the outrageous things that Israeli politicians do talk about, um, and all the, the quasi-genocidal things that, that you'll hear, um, people on the Israeli right saying, um, it's not usually nuke them. Um, yeah. Jacob? Have any of your subjects responded to the book yet? Um, only one. Uh, most of them are not, um, don't have super strong English um, skills. So only one who, I, when I was in Palestine uh, last month, the, the main point of my visit was to hand out copies because you can't mail things very effectively to the West Bank. Um, and one uh, young woman did read it. Um, she said she cried. Um, she's still talking to me. She's still my friend. Um, you've had your hand up for a while. Uh, so easy, so hard. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, hard as I with impressive ease. Um, so, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and you mentioned uh, avoided words. So, I wonder why um, you use settler and settlement instead of occupier and occupation. I wonder if you see a time when discourse will change. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I do use the word occupation plenty. Um, you know, um, the New York Times still put the word occupation in quotes uh, a few weeks ago in an article. I don't know if anybody followed that. They, they ended up, uh, Glenn Greenwald called them out on it and they, they changed it. Um, but it, I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing that words like that still are, um, are controversial. And that's why, it's, that's why I say it's important for, like, for people just to talk about this stuff. Um, because the more, we, like, the more it's talked about, the more that stranglehold on language will be broken. Um, and I, I mean that in the press. I mean it on Facebook. I mean it, you know, at dinner. Um, you know, I, I, one of the like most effective means of political control is control over language. Um, yeah. I Thank you. Thank you. I was wondering if you could speak to some of the vulnerabilities for um, writers, journalists, cultural activists who come, try to come to Palestine or Israel in this moment. I mean, one of the things that's come up both because of the increasing strength of BDS, but also the rightward shift in the Israeli government is a number of laws that you know um, prohibit discussion of the Nakba or um, uh, prohibit uh, people from uh, boycotting in various ways. And one of the things that I think I saw a few months ago was under consideration that no one who had advocated BB BDS could enter the country. I don't know if they how they can implement that, but given the complexity and uh, the financial backing for their security states, you know, it, it seems feasible, something something like that. And I was wondering, you know, for you, if, if you've had problems, but more so for, for maybe for Arab writers that you know uh, what problems they've had entering, whether that's getting worse, and, you know, how also in a moment where we're hoping that, that there, there's a, a better shift in terms of awareness, um, people might feel like they want to actually see what's happening on the ground, and Israel might be more and more attempting to get keep those people out. And yeah. I'm also speaking, you know, as, as someone of Palestinian descent who's never been, but mm -hmm. who wants to go and has plans to go soon, but worries about, you know, on Twitter what I say and what I, right. you know, those kinds of things. M many of my friends have been interrogated for, of course, many hours yeah. when they attempt to enter and, and uh, most deactivate their different social networks right. and all of that before entering. So uh, how do you see that, you know, going into you know, I, I mean, uh, I have a, a huge amount of privilege with an American passport and a Jewish name and white skin, and um, I've had, uh, um, for the most part, very little trouble going in now. Um, I have, you know, some questioning, et cetera, et cetera. But usually, I have a press card, which makes it makes it much easier. Um, for if you have an Arab name. If you have dark skin, if you um, fit any of the various sort of activisty profiles that they're looking out for, it's a lot harder, and people do get turned away um, and deported. And um, um, I don't know that any of those laws you're talking about have had that much uh, impact yet. Um, you know, certainly the situation for Palestinian journalists uh, working within the West Bank is is quite quite hazardous. Um, I. 
wish I had the numbers, but there's a, um, I think it's more than a dozen Palestinian journalists are currently in prison, have been arrested since October. Um, more than one, I think, are in administrative detention, um, which is a uh, legal leftover from the British mandate, which allows the Israeli government to um, take you without charge, without telling you what any of the evidence against you is, and, and, and keep you for six months, which then they can renew and keep renewing every six months. These um, are journalists, you know. Um, so... You know, it's, it certainly is and always has been much harder for, for Palestinian um, journalists, and not just journalists. I mean, people are going, getting um, imprisoned for, for Facebook posts and for social media use. Um, and that was, when I first started working there, that was new. Um, I wrote a piece for the LA Review of Books about a, a writer friend I knew who was arrested for his Facebook posts. Um, and it was weird then, um, and now it's absolutely common. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. For for me, it's not that difficult. I mean, it, it's it's mainly racial profiling so that occurs. Um, books you said you were going to bring the Palestinians. Did they happen to check out one of those books? The books were were smuggled to me by by um by, say, by by friendly mules. Yeah. Yes. Um, as far as the conversation and the narrative in this country, I've, what I find is really helpful in setting a very accurate, hard-hitting frame of reference is three little words. I know that was a song, but uh, colonial settler state. Mm. It is not only accurate, but it gives a larger context. We're living in one, as I'm sure many people have noticed. And you'll notice also the support for Israel, whether it's in this country or Australia mm-hmm. or Canada. Or South Africa. Settler, South Africa, settler states. Um, and uh, having my nearest of kin, my only sibling, has been living in Israel and is in Israel for most of our adults' lives. And I have nieces and nephews in the army and this and that. It helps me not be angry at every Israeli person because they're part of the system. That's not to let them off the hook. Um, and unfortunately, it also discharges into the conversation uh, what is almost inherent to colonial settlers, yeah. which is genocide. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, f- for me in reading about the books that were most helpful for me in understanding this conflict were often not the ones written about the conflict or the occupation. They were they were books about colonialism, like you know Fanon and and Cesaire and and you know um, and Said, absolutely. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think I, I absolutely think that's the the correct frame um, and the frame that explains the most. Um, and even in terms of the continuities between uh, British colonialism and 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 the Israeli state, um, which are are. Multifold. I go into some of that in, in kind of glancing um, ways in the book, but yeah, I think you're right. Um, let's just take uh, let's just take one more um, and um, yeah. All right. So, just the last question. I'm going to try to stumble through. No pressure. <laughs> um, so, as a a Arab, um, of course, the events earlier this week really attuned to them. Mm-hmm. Noticing, fortunately, um, noticing that a lot of 
gay people have responded not by saying this is a Muslim attack on gay rights, but this is about guns and homophobia. Yeah. And yet, noticing the distance between what's happening in our community in response to this and what's being viewed as what happened uh, to our community in response to this. And I've been trying very vocally to say, look, you know, if you attack Muslims, now you're attacking LGBT people as well. It's mm-hmm. the same attack and system. Um, so what I'm bringing up is this sort of the issue of pinkwashing, the issue of especially people who believe they're supporting the LGBT community, supporting Hillary um, Clinton and the policies that are in, in history that plays into pinkwashing. And, um, how to bring sort of what's maybe, I mean, I feel almost bad talking about uh, a leverage um, in relation to what has just happened. And I feel it. I feel there being some leverage in what just happened um, and, and, and separating uh, uh, kinds of bigotries and, and, and these sorts of things. So I, I wonder if you could talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, yeah, does everybody know what the word pinkwashing means? Um, pinkwashing is a, a word used to describe uh, a practice pretty common uh, practice of the Israeli government and its supporters to um, say, look how nice we are to the gays, basically. Um, and those Arabs over there, like, they wouldn't let people be gay like, they, like we do, um, which is a way of sort of smoothing over a lot of the, the violence of the occupation through, I think, Racism, <laughs> um, but um, and it, I think it, it can be hard to talk about because there is homophobia in Palestinian society. I mean, there's homophobia everywhere, you know, um, and um, and one doesn't want to pretend there isn't, you know. Um, at the same time, um, it's it's kind of a look over there tactic. Um, I don't really know. Um, what to to add to it ex- except that uh yeah like i mean the people that were killed in that nightclub were were gay and they were brown and it's been used as a like as a way to justify violence against other brown people um and 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 that's shameful and painful and horrible i don't think it's that different from from the practice of pinkwashing um but are the parties using it too is that what you're alluding to too my misunderstanding I will say uh, the only other instance I know of where someone uh, went into a um, gay nightclub and, and started uh, harming people was in was in Tel Aviv, um, an Orthodox Jewish man. Um, this was, I think the first time was like six years ago. He went in and he stabbed like six people. Um, he was arrested. He went to jail. He came out. And last year, he did it again in another another gay club. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the problem is not um, one religion or another. Um, but they didn't tear down his house. They did not. They did not. Um, we can have a, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, we know that one. Um, okay, thank you guys so much for coming. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.